Yeah, let's pray. Father, as we look to your word this morning, we acknowledge how we feel. We bring it to you and we ask, Spirit, that you would speak to our hearts, to our minds, that with humility we would receive it as you place it in our soul. Would you be pleased to make known what you would have us to learn, not just to become a better people, better parents, better brothers and sisters, better friends, but Father, to become more like you, to give you glory. May your word be preached to that end in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if you've seen the movie Hidden Figures. Uh, I had occasion to watch it recently. If you're not familiar with the story, it is the story of three black women working at NASA uh, in the 60s during the height of the space race uh, with Russia, which also happens to coincide with kind of the height of the civil rights movement. And uh, it's a powerful movie. If you haven't seen it, um, I, I would commend it to you. I don't, whenever I use a movie analogy, I don't always necessarily do that. This is a great movie for you to watch. And um, there's a scene, uh, kind of, it's not kind of the climax of the movie, but it is kind of the height of the tension where Russia has just put uh, Sputnik into space, right? And the U.S. is behind. And there's a lot of tension in the office. And the man that leads the office at NASA that's in charge of putting someone into space, his name is Al Harrison. And Harrison has... Uh, brought in a woman named Katherine Johnson to be his mathematician, to, to figure out how to make the math work, to put someone into space. And with all this pressure, with everything that's going on, um, Harrison looks down from his office onto the floor. He can see everybody on the floor, and he notices that Catherine isn't at her desk. And he's seen this a couple of times before, and he just kind of, he doesn't fly off the handle, right? He's respectful about it, but he interrogates her in front of everyone, and he says, Catherine, where do you go? Where do you go every day? And she says, to the bathroom, sir. He says, to the bathroom? To the bathroom? What are you doing in there? We're T minus zero here. We've, we need all hands on deck. I need you. I put a lot of faith in you, Catherine. And she has this speech, and I'm not going to uh, do all this speech. Um, just for the sake of time, I'd encourage you to listen to it. But listen to what she says. This is part of it. She says, there's no, no colored bathrooms in this building or any building outside the West Campus, which is half a mile away. Did you know that? I have to walk to Timbuktu just to relieve myself. And I can't use one of the handy bikes. Picture that, Mr. Harrison. Me in my uniform with my skirt below my knees, my high heels, and a string of pearls. Well, I don't own pearls. Lord knows you don't pay colors enough to afford pearls. And I work like a dog day and night, living off a of coffee from a pot that none of you want to touch. So you'll forgive me if I have to go from time to time to relieve myself. 
It's a powerful scene. And it makes me so angry to see people treated that way. And maybe you haven't been treated that way because of your skin, because of your gender. Maybe it's just somebody who bullied you. Maybe it's just a friend who betrayed you. Maybe it's a parent who disowned you. Whatever it is, if I gave you 10 seconds to think about a time that you've been wronged in your life, you wouldn't even need five. And when you think about that, and you start to feel that anger and that sadness in this part of your body, you're starting to feel 1 Samuel 26. Because that's what it's about. David is being wronged continually. He's under pressure from Saul, who is seeking his life. And he has an opportunity to respond. And so we're going to look this morning just briefly at the two responses, Abishai's response and David's response. And then we're going to talk about, spend most of our time on how does David have the response that he does under such tremendous pressure. Let me give you a little context first for chapter 26. We didn't read the whole chapter. So as I said, David is the anointed king. He is being pursued by Saul. Um, Saul doesn't know that David has been anointed king, but David's stature in Israel has grown, right? The famous saying is Saul has killed his thousands, but David's killed his tens of thousands, right? And he's already escaped once from Saul. He found Saul in a cave and he escaped. He didn't kill Saul then. And now that was in chapter 24. Now we're in chapter 26 and he's out. David's running away. He's trying to avoid Saul, but Saul is pursuing him. And David learns from his scouts that Saul is encamped nearby. And so he and Abishai go at night and they sneak into the camp all the way into Saul's tent. And that's where we pick up in verse six. They're in the camp. And Abishai's response starts in verse eight. And Abishai says this, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now, please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear. I will not strike twice. And when I read Abishai's response, like to me, and maybe you think differently, it seems totally natural. Right? Somebody is, is coming after me. I've got to protect myself. Right? I've got to take some steps. And it's not even just the way he wants to do it, but he even puts a, a godly tone to it, right? Notice what he says. God has given your enemy into your hand. And friends, that would not be inconsistent with Israel's history. Israel's enemies are often given into their hand, right? So, so what Abishai is saying seems to make sense at first glance. But David's response is different. So if Abishai kind of responded over here, kind of this natural, like, yeah, okay, this looks like this is what God wants to do. David says something different. Look at verse 9. Abishai said to David, I'm sorry, David said to Abishai, do not destroy him. For who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? 
And he repeats that in verse 11. The Lord forbid it that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. But take now the spear that is at the head of the jar in the water and let us go. David does take action. He does take steps to right the wrong. But he says, I'm not going to do it the way that you say, Abishai, because there's something else going on here. David's response is more measured. He's able to say in the moment, that's not what God wants us to do. And we're often confronted in our lives with times, especially when we're wronged, right? When we want to take vengeance, we want to take matters in our own hands. We want the wrong to stop and we want the right to start, right? And that's all we want. And we're kind of speaking almost out of that sense of we need to stop the injustice or we need to stop the pain. We need to stop the hurt. But David's able to look even beyond that. And to walk out of the camp without harming Saul. How does he do it? It's a little bit hidden. Kind of in the first few words that David says. But he says in verse 10. As the Lord lives. And it kind of seems like like a throwaway statement. Like sometimes, you know, we might say something like, as God is my witness, and we should always say that with extreme reverence, right? That's what the Bible teaches us. But it almost seems kind of like a parenthetical statement. But really, it's a fundamental truth that David is acknowledging. So think about David's life. When David says, as the Lord lives, he's saying, the Lord lives today. The Lord does today the same thing that he did yesterday, which is the same thing he did the day before that, which is the same thing he did the day before that. The Lord is the same today, yesterday and forever. God delivered me from Saul once before. God anointed me king. God delivered me from Goliath. God protected me from the bear and the lion in the wilderness when I was tending flocks. God is the same as yesterday and today and forever. As the Lord lives is a statement of faith by David that God is who he said he is and he will do what he says he will do. And that is what we trust in. And his whole life has been a process of learning from little individual acts of faith, of seeing the grace of God demonstrated in his life that enables him to respond in faith when things are really, really hard. When he wants to lash out, when he wants to take it into his own hands, he's able to look at the character of God and say, I don't have to do that. The second way that he's able to do that is through something we call, in Reformed theology, the analogy of faith. Let me explain that. We believe that the Bible, right, is God's Word. As God's Word, it is infused with God himself, right? All scripture is God-breathed, is kind of how we say from 2 Timothy 3.16. 
And God is the source of truth. God does not lie. And so if that's true, then what that means is that when we read scripture, it tells and presents a unified story of who God is. And the things contained in scripture don't contradict each other. And they're not always so clear, right? And so the analogy of faith is the principle that we use the things that are more clear to help us interpret the things that are less clear. And we do that in our lives, right? And that's exactly what David is doing here. So again, put yourself in David's shoes. It seems like what Abishai is saying, this could be God's will for us. This could be God's provision for us that you kill Saul and we don't have to shed any more blood. This could be the end of it. You could take matters into your own hands. You could do this. But David stops and says, but is there something wrong with that? Is there something wrong with doing that? And he says it twice. It's the only thing that's really repeated in the chapter. And he says it in verses 9 and 11. Who can put his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? You see, David knows he could be referring to a bunch of different things, right? He could be referring to the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not kill. Probably not, right? It's war. It's a whole thing. And I don't want to, you know, my purpose is not to get into that. But what most scholars agree that he's probably referencing is shortly after the Ten Commandments, Exodus twenty-two twenty-eight. You should not, you shall not revile the Lord your God, and you shall not curse a ruler of his people. David understands that the ruler of his people, the ruler of the nation of Israel, is appointed by God Himself, and to strike out against that ruler, even one who is not walking the way that he should be who is walking in unrighteousness, to do that would be a grievous sin against God's revealed will. And for us, kind of what that means is, and what David demonstrates, God is never going to call you to do something to the ends that requires sin to get there. He's not going to do that, right? The ends doesn't justify the means in Scripture. It's not just that we can be righteous on the outset. It's perfect righteousness the whole time, right? That's the standard. That's what Jesus did. And so David's able to look at that and say, all right, I know this to be true about God, and I know this to be true about what he's told me to do. And based on those two things, he's able to make the decision not to take matters into his own hands. Just by God's grace. And he trusts in that. He trusts in that implicitly, with it, literally with his life. He knows Saul. If you read the rest of the chapter, he knows Saul is not going to stop. He actually has the opportunity to go back with Saul. And he doesn't because he knows Saul's relenting is not going to stop. Saul wants to drive him from the land, which is what he does. But the reason I put verses 22 and 23 in there is because David demonstrates that he knows that the Lord rewards righteousness. He knows who his God is. And when he is pressed, that is what he comes back to time and time and time and time and time again in his life. And that's where we need to go when we're wronged. You know, in the movie, 
right after the speech, Al Harrison walks over to the coffee pot that was labeled colors only, and he pulls the, the label off of it and throws it in the trash. And then later on, he goes and he knocks down the sign over the colored women's restroom. It takes him minutes because it's bolted into a brick wall. And I love those steps. It warms my heart. But at the same time, do you think it made up for the lifetime of wrong that Catherine had experienced? And I think about David and think about the steps that he took knowing that it wasn't going to be the end. Friends, we work, we work to right the wrongs in our lives. We work to right the wrongs that are part of the brokenness of the world, whether it's racism, whether it's discrimination, whether it's sin in our own lives and sinful patterns, whether we're trying to break generational cycles in our families of divorce and hatred, whatever it is we're trying to do, we are trying to right wrongs because that's what the gospel does. But some, some wrongs won't, maybe can't be fixed in this life. We talked about the shooting. We talked about Ames. Think about the things that are core to you, to who you are. For me this week, when I was at Ames's funeral, the thing that struck me was my own sister's death. And I never went to her funeral. But I remember my dad saying that the thing that was most powerful to him was how small the coffin was. It's a wrong we can't make right right now. But friends, that's not our hope. That's not what we're hoping in. That's not what Easter is about. That's not what the gospel is about. Our hope is that one day we will stand in the new creation filled with happiness. Not just happiness because we're innocent of evil, but happiness because the justice of the righteous Jesus Christ has vindicated once and for all all of the evil upon those whom it was perpetrated. Everything that is broken will be restored. Every atom that was destroyed and decayed will be re-knit. Everything in creation that has been corrupted by sin and all of the evil punished forever. That is what we hope in. And that's what gives us the strength when things are coming in our life, when we're wronged, when we're betrayed, when we're hurt, when we're scared, when we're tired, when we're frustrated, right? All of the things that push us 
to want to take matters into our own hands. It's the hope of the resurrection, right? Jesus, who was eternally, fully, completely, infinitely wronged on our behalf, now vindicated and seated at God's right hand as proof that if he has been so vindicated, so will everyone else who believes in his name. I'll leave you this morning with some words from Paul, the apostle. He's not commenting on 1 Samuel 26, but it has striking parallels. He might as well be commenting on 1 Samuel 26. Something that you can go home maybe today at lunch or throughout the week sometime and just read it um, and, and read the story, read the whole chapter of 1 Samuel 26 and see what things you notice are there. It's from Romans 12, 14 to 21. I won't read the whole section. This is what Paul says. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Amen. Let's pray. Father, long before creation, you knew all those that you would call to yourself, and you knew the wrongs that they would have to endure for your name's sake. Father, we long for the wrongs to be righted. And so we pray, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Come quickly and do not delay. Come and restore the brokenness. Come and make all things new. In Jesus' name, amen.